I'm Farah Dijanet of Farah Dijanet Whole Horsemanship in Central Massachusetts in the USA. And this is another episode of my podcast where I'll help you liberate your horsemanship. Hello, liberated horsemen out there. Uh, welcome to this month's pod. And uh, let's see, it's February. It is the middle of winter. We're in the back stretch. And I have been thinking a lot about a recurring theme for this, this year. Um, even for myself, uh, I titled this podcast, (laughs) amongst other things, Just Breathe. And it's been on my mind a lot. Um, Part of my uh, implementation for 2024 was to meditate more. I always meditate from time to time, but I've been more regimented about it lately. Um, In the good weather out in the paddocks, when it's nice and I try to do a little bit before bed at night lately which helps me sleep and also it's a great way to end the day I think but uh, some of the workshops I've been doing and just in general um, it comes up a lot and we all know about we all know how to that we should breathe, but we don't. And it's very interesting because whenever I remind people to breathe when we're working with horses, uh, I rarely hear someone going, well, I am breathing good. They're always like, oh yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, it's important. And I, I felt like I just wanted to remind everybody to just breathe and think about it. Um, It's so helpful, it's energizing, you know, it helps release tension and it's so important because whenever, you know, I watch horses, as soon as people do that, it just, it changes the horse instantaneously and it is the easiest thing to do. You do not need to be a highly skilled professional. You do not need to be any skill level to just breathe and cause a positive change in the horse. So I just want to remind everybody again about that. And um, one of my favorite exercises, you want to talk about instantaneous connection with a horse, is to stand with a horse any horse that you're working with and um, just synchronize your breath with them. Uh, If it helps you to watch their abdomen or their flanks, that's the best way to get in sync. But that's my little exercise I'm going to offer in this particular podcast. And... um, Let me know how that goes. Try it out. Just try synchronizing your breath 
for a minute or two with whatever horse you're with and let me know how that goes for you. Also, this subject came up because um, I was just speaking to Marty Whittle of Yoga, and she and I were discussing an upcoming collaboration that we're trying to organize. Uh, Nothing in stone yet, but uh, highly probable that we're going to put something together for um, hopefully May, just coming up quick. Keep you posted. But she and I were discussing that with the increased use of uh, devices, aka phones and uh, other things, that they had studies had shown that we were breathing worse and worse. Shocking, I know. Just because we're just absorbed with our devices, so we just don't even breathe. It's affected the quality of our breaths too. Um, so anyway. She and I were discussing that. And uh, so breathe when you're on your damn phone, when you're staring at your phone. We're all doing it. Breathe. Remember to breathe, people. Uh, It is also uh, Black History Month. And last year I started um, focusing on um, particular... uh, equestrians that I found, black equestrians, and last year I focused on beautiful Jim Key, the book that I have in my library, William Key, who was a uh, slave that became a famous, uh, incredibly talented horse trainer, uh, and famous for training the horse, uh, beautiful Jim Key, which, um, he had an, an incredible um, talent with and did exhibitions all over the you know, world and uh, well, no, in the, not over the world, but in um, America and was, you know, became famous. And um, I won't uh, track, backtrack to that, but I will point to that book if you want to check it out, Beautiful Jim Key. And uh, it's about William Key and the horse he, who he called Beautiful Jim Key who was a very famous horse that was supposed to be the smartest horse in the world. And um, it's a great story, and it's a true story. And um, the most noteworthy thing of that particular story was that William Key was responsible for starting basically the Humane Society for Horses and Animals because he... um, founded the notion that you know animals should be treated well this was a time when people weren't treated well so animals most surely weren't treated well also but he is credited with starting basically the roots of the humane society so what a legacy and um he had his horse and him as a spokesperson so um i really encourage you to check that out if you haven't already and um the person of note tonight that I uh, brought uh, for you to read, and actually, I'm going to read like I did. I read uh, a bit of uh, beautiful Jim Key last time. Uh, I'm going to talk about Tom Bass, who was also called a black horse whisperer and was uh, born on a slave plantation 
and um, I'll just start reading about this person so you can know his story. And um, also, there's a book written about Tom Bass, and um, it's uh, interesting that uh, you know he's not also um, widely well known, but um, you know. I'd like to bring light to uh, everybody so that if you want to check these stories out, I'll uh, talk about the author of the book and the name of the book if you would like to learn more about Tom Bass and um, William Key. uh, I'll give you a little information at the end. So um, I found this little excerpt from uh, Horse Connection com. I just want to make sure I give them credit. But um, there is a part one and a part two. And I'm going to read part one. And if you want to read part two, you can look up that horseconnection.com. I'll try to remember to post the link at the podcast. But um, yeah, for your enjoyment, I'll be reading this little excerpt from it and uh, telling you about the famous... A black horse whisperer who was before Ray Hunt, before Buck Brenneman, before the Dorrances, and uh, before all the other household word horse whisperers that we all know. There was William Key and uh, Tom Bass. So without further ado, uh, here we go. The year is 1859 was a bad time to be born black and few places were more unlikely to harbor a hero than the tiny Missouri slave cabin where Tom Bass first drew breath and cried out that cold January morning. His mother, Cornelia Gray, tried to comfort the infant. Despite the fire her father had laid on, the place was freezing. There was little comfort to be had. Besides, she was a slave on one of the largest plantations in the state. She suckled the infant and held him tight against the penetrating cold. Little Tom Bass had even less paternal support. His daddy was not present at the blessed event, which came as no surprise to Cornelia. William Hayden Bass wasn't just newborn Tom's father. He was white and therefore also the child's legal owner. According to the laws of Missouri, Bass was allowed to either sell off or keep his own child as he saw fit. But there were hundreds of slaves on the Bass plantation, and civil war with the North was looming. Little Tom snuggled up against his mother, ignored for the time being by both his father and the cold, cruel world outside. He was just another commodity on otherwise busy plantation. It was Grandpa Presley Gray who raised the boy soon after his mother left home. The Civil War raged around them with men fighting and dying on battlefields like Shiloh and Gettysburg. And though troops came and went, the Bass Plantation remained intact. Illegitimate, ignored, suspect in both worlds, it came as no surprise to Grandpa Presley that even as a child, Tom preferred horses to people. Tom learned to toddle while playing around horses so tall he could walk under their bellies. The little boy was riding alone at four. Two years later, he was jumping fences fearlessly. 
Horses started following him around the barnyard like 1,200-pound lapdogs. Folks on the plantation couldn't help but notice the boy's uncanny ability to communicate with animals. When the fate of the nation was decided at Appomattox by Grant and Lee, the slave system in Missouri was abolished. Tom Bass was a free man at the age of six. His grandpa Presley had waited more than 50 years to savor the same moment, but with no money, no prospects, and nowhere else to go, Grandpa Presley decided to stay on at the plantation working as a freedman. Little Tom did likewise. Though he later owned some of the most famous horses in the world, Tom Bass started out on a humble mule. Grandpa Presley had given him the notorious Mr. Potts to train as he saw fit. The mule was infamous for his refusal to work. He couldn't be hitched to a wagon, Plying was beneath him, riding him was out of the question. It was either sell him off or give him to the beloved grandchild to fool with. He went to Tom. Like many of the other challenges that confronted Tom Bass later in life, his first unofficial horse show came about because of bigotry and racial prejudice. When Tom's half-brother, the white son of William Hayden Bass, came back to the plantation, fate intervened. The brother and his friends were clumsy riders. When they noticed Tom watching with an amused smile, they mocked him, calling him racial slurs and daring him to prove that he could outride them. History was about to be made. In a few minutes, Tom reappeared wearing his grandpa Presley's black coat and white shirt. The clothes were too big, but what sent the white boys off into peals of laughter was seeing Tom leading out the outlaw mule, Mr. Potts. They continued to laugh as he mounted, but then their mockery came to an end. Mr. Potts was going around the ring in a fine collected canter. Mr. Potts was racking like some fine saddle horse. And then Mr. Potts did the impossible. He cantered backwards around the length of the ring. Mr. Potts, the outlaw, was no more. Tom Bass, his trainer, was nine years old. Tales began to spread among the backwoods of Missouri about a small black boy who was making miracles happen with horses. Tom's first job was at the town hotel, originally hired to simply drive customers from the train station to the Ringo Hotel. It wasn't long before teenage boys' uncanny ability to solve equestrian problems was the talk of the town. Well-to-do white customers were soon bringing him horses that no one else could ride or train. When not busy working as a bellhop and a buggy driver, he began turning out high-stepping horses on the side. By the spring of 1879, at age 20, Tom had been hired to work as a trainer by Joseph Potts in the nearby town of Mexico, Missouri. Potts was one of Missouri's leading horsemen. He owned Thornton Star, one of the founding stallions of the yet-to-be-recognized American saddle horse. Potts's business partner, Cyrus Clark, expressed what many in the burgeoning town felt, that the class-conscious saddle horse business was no place for a black man. Joseph Potts strongly disagreed, arguing he had never met a man who had a better eye for horse flesh than Tom Bass. The American saddle horse was entering its golden age. High-stepping prancers ruled the road. Men were judged as much on what they rode as who they were. 
The, Mex the Mexico Horse Sales Company, owned by Potts and Clark, prided itself on selling only the Cadillacs of the horse world. Exceptional horses for the company's annual sale were always in demand. When the yearly, uh, the year's highly anticipated summer sale rolled around, the company was facing a shortage of suitable horses to offer at the horse sale. Tom surprised his employers by producing six backcountry bargains for the company to sell. Even cynical Cyrus Clark had to admit that Tom had quietly taken these six outlaw horses and returned them ladybroke. Potts just nodded wisely and told his bigoted partner that Tom Bass was the best judge of horseflesh that he had ever seen. During these formative years, Tom earned an unequaled reputation for treating horses with kindness that lasted his lifetime. Many Americans were still inclined to see horses as disposable commodities, to be used cruelly, fed as little as financially possible, and when they died horribly worked to death in their traces to be swiftly replaced by a new victim. The recent Civil War had been instrumental in beginning to change this common misconception. Men who had suffered and campaigned alongside their equine companions were less apt to beat and ride them to death. Cruel practices were still common, however, one of which was to severely overbit a horse and then to brutally punish it when they reacted against the torment in their mouth. Still in his early 20s, Tom Bass quietly invented a new bit which revolutionized the horse world. The majority of bits at the time were light and low ports and short shanks. Tom observed, uh, Tom's observation of problem horses convinced him that ill-fitted, improper bidding was largely responsible for bad backs, lameness, and much of the savage behavior he encountered in the outlaws. The customer's strong demand for roadworthy horses in a hurry was forcing many trainers to rush the horse training. Horses were fighting the cruel bits forced into their mouths being whipped and even clubbed when they resisted. Bill Cunningham, a friend, recalled later that Tom's idea was to use the bit to communicate to the horse instead of punishing him. When presented with the new bit, Joseph Potts urged Tom to patent his new invention. Tom replied that he had stayed awake nights worrying about the welfare of the horse, horses of the world. He didn't want any money for the new bit. He just wanted to ease the suffering of horses, known as the Tom Bass bit. It was soon widely copied, though few actually knew who its originator was. Two years later, Tom Bass not only surprised his employer, he made history. A man-killing mare, the Blazing Black, had been brought into the stable to either be trained or destroyed. She was so vicious, kicking, screaming, and biting, the terrified stable hand had to drive her into the stall with a pitchfork before they could manage to slam the and shut the stall door. The next few days, while the other men went about their chores, Tom began quietly working with the mare, always softly talking, talking, talking to the contentious animal. He cautiously gained her trust, slowly touching her withers, her head, and her feet. For the first time in her life, she was treated with respect instead of cruelty. Joseph Potts and the crew were shocked two nights later when Tom Bass came riding softly into the stable on the killer horse. Potts later swore 
that Tom had not only made them forget she was an outlaw, he had even convinced the horse of it. When Potts asked Tom why the mare hadn't tried to kill him like everyone else in the barn, Tom replied, if she was going to kill me, she would say so. A few months later, with an important horse show coming up, the Mexico Horse Sales Company found themselves facing a new dilemma. They did not have a mare to compete in a prestigious event. Winning show horses meant improved horse sales. The company was in the embarrassing position of not having a show-worthy mare. Spurning the whip and relying instead on his intuitive sense of communication, Tom Bass had managed to do wonders with Blazing Black, yet she would allow no other rider or groom close to her. As long as Tom was on her back, the Blazing Black was show quality, but Tom Bass was not white and no one else could ride her. When the faithful day arrived to either show the mare or face the specter of professional defeat, Joe Potts announced to his partner and the other company employees, I hope you're ready, Tom Bass, because you are about to be the first Negro in history to show the Missouri and Kentucky white folks that a good man on a fine riding horse can perform a miracle. It was a turning point in the life of the young horse trainer. When the time came to ride into the class for mares, four years old and older, a nervous Tom remembers that his grandfather Presley told him, you've got to be fearless, son. Our people need your success. Word has quietly spread among the 20 or so other riders in the class that Potts and Clark were entering Tom in the class because he was the only one who could ride this outlaw mare. There was some curiosity, but no hostility. Tom rode the blazing black, confidently, quietly took second place and broke down a long-cherished color barrier which held that riding quality show horses was an activity reserved for America's white gentry. Potts was furious, believing Tom had deserved to win the blue ribbon, but Tom was pleased, believing he had shown that his riding, his skill in riding was more important than the color of his skin. It soon became a point of honor among riders to beat him in the show ring. Few of them could. In 1883, the Mexico Horse Sales Company was sold. Taking the advice of his mentor, Joe Potts, Tom took the courageous step of starting his own training stable. He bought four brush-covered acres on the outskirts of town. A local contractor offered to clear the land if in exchange Tom would train his team of horses. Life took on a faster pace. Tom married Angie Jewell, the town's first black school teacher in 1882. They built a house, raised a barn, and laid out training rings. Word of Tom's ability with horses was now spreading throughout Dixie. He was still riding in horse shows and bringing home blue ribbons. In 1888, the governor of Missouri sent his horse to Mexico to be trained by Tom Bass. Business was soon booming, and Tom confided to Angie that he had a new concern. He needed a brag horse. Like all great show stables of that day, Tom Bass wanted a superior horse he could ride in horse shows. A great winner meant more sale horses, uh, more horse sales and training for the Bass stables. One day, Tom came home trailing his brag horse. A long-legged gray colt pranced behind his buggy. He found him in a field full of cows and bought him for $100. He's got the fastest moves I ever saw in a colt, he told Angie and went on to inform her that he had named the colt Columbus. When asked why, he replied, Columbus discovered America and I discovered Columbus. 
Tom was delighted when Columbus learned to obey voice commands easily. The young horse followed Tom around any maze of obstacles, displaying an absolutely fearless nature. Any gate he couldn't open with his teeth, he could crawl under. Tom swore he was the smartest horse he had ever known or heard of. The young Gray soon became more like Tom and Angie's child than just another horse in training. During the next few years, while working other people's horses, Tom devoted as much time as he could to Columbus. By the time Tom decided Columbus was ready for his first show, gorgeous gray gelding was picture perfect with arching neck and flashing eyes. Tom Bass already had a reputation as a fine trainer, a gentleman both in and out of the ring, and a rider of unbelievable quality. Many initial critics had long ago learned that think what they might privately about his origins in the show ring, Tom Bass was almost impossible to beat. His uncanny talent of, of gently communicating with his horses seemed to bring forth responses from his mouth that left other riders looking like rank amateurs. But due no doubt to Columbus's own amazing natural talents, Tom decided their major show, their maiden show together had to be a big one. He entered them in the St. Louis Horse Show. The event attracted the best talent the Midwest had to offer. General Ulysses Grant and other equally famous horsemen had shown their horses there. It was also a meeting place of the socially powerful. No black American had ever had the opportunity to ride there. Until Tom Bass showed up with Columbus, no black American had ever had the courage to even try. Tom entered Columbus in the high school competition. This complicated class was considered the most difficult of its time. Each horse entered the ring and performed his routine along to the music of a St. Louis band. The Spanish trot and the caprice were only a few of the movements expected of the horse deemed worthy of the honor of competing in the high school event. When the ringmaster called out Thomas Bass showing Columbus, the eyes of the American Midwest were riveted on the young rider. Whispers flew. What was a black man doing in the show ring? Wasn't this the fellow rumored to have taught all the outlaw horses? But questions ceased when Tom and Columbus started their routine. The music flowed and the great gray horse flew. He and his rider pirouetted, they pranced, they rapped, they pivoted and leaped. The crowd hushed as they watched as an equine performance the like of which none of them had ever seen. Tom rode Columbus as though the two of them had issued together from the same mother's womb. They were half horse, half man, a perfect blameless centaur who had passed into perfection and left behind the world of tears. Then Tom put the rest, put to rest the legends. Columbus cantered backwards around the show ring. The performance was so faultless, even the other contestants began to applaud. Finally, Columbus stood on his rear legs, turned a full circle, and then with the grace of ballerina came down to kneel on one leg, bowing his head in tribute to the astonished judges. I'll be darned, one judge was heard to say. I would have said that was an impossible feat for any horse or women. Tom Bass, backwoods horseman, had taken the world by storm. And that, with that, is the expert I was going to read. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. I've enjoyed researching this, actually. And um, part two, as I said, is available 
uh, on horseconnections.com. If you look up um, the actual title, Whispers on the Wind, is the book by Bill Downey. So if you want to read the full story, I think there's actually more than one book um, that is uh, I saw when I did some poking around there. But um, uh, one of the other things I, um, I, I have to ponder, actually, is there's so many, you know, great horse movies out there and great stories, you know. And these two stories are amazing. Like, why has there not been a movie made about these? I will never know. But I said the same thing last year. I'm still saying it. There still hasn't been movies made about these two people. And they're just great stories. I mean, just great horse stories. It's all the things we love as as, as horse people and just as humans. You know, about uh, people overcoming adversity in their lives and animals being treated well and people advocating for animals. But, um, you know, really, really important to um, look back at, at the past and acknowledge these people who, who came before us. And, um, yeah, uh, I saw that the book was available on Amazon, uh, if you want to look at that, and probably also um, beautiful Jim Key is available there. I don't remember the author on that one. But, um, yeah, uh, I think that uh, it's it's worth, you know, learning about these, learning about people who are, have been doing this. Uh, it makes me feel good knowing that in the, you know, 1800s, that there was always people who cared about animals and always people that were understanding that we could do better and we can still do better. And uh, this is not a new concept. You know, some of the information has changed. We've definitely learned um, that we don't need bits and things like that. You know, he was lauded for inventing uh, a more humane bit. And that was for that time, a, a step in the right direction. You know, nowadays we're like, hey, we don't really need bits or even bridles for that matter in some cases. So, um, you know, jumping forward to now, uh, yeah, we can always do better. Everybody, we, we know, we don't, need to, we don't need to keep sticking to the same things just because. So, um, yeah, this weekend I am over at... Uh, Cedarwood uh, on Sunday. I think we're full though, but uh, auditing is always available. Uh, if you want to swing by, visit, say hi, see what, what I'm up to, see some you working with some horses over there. Um, I just did the second of the Natural Frame live Zoom. Uh, that replay is up on the website if you want to see it, uh, if you're interested. Uh, the third one I'll be scheduling soon. Um, that one will be the advanced natural frame. If you're interested in seeing more advanced work done, I'll be doing that one, another free one, a uh, date to be announced. Uh, 
I think, um, yeah, there's possibly, uh, like I mentioned, the uh, retreat that will be actually at Cedarwood in May. We haven't put a date down. Um, This is not in stone, but I'm just putting it out there. Um, And then June 2nd, this is in stone. Um, The Nika Mounted Soccer Clinic in Athol. Um, There are only two spots left for that right now. So uh, if you have any interest in learning the, the super fun mounted soccer, I mean, this is, it is so fun, people. It is, this is why I keep trying to do these clinics. So I want to share the fun because some horse people are just not having enough fun right now. I look around and I see some people, they are just not having enough fun. So one of my missions is to bring more fun, horse funship, more horse funship to everybody. But um, yeah, so uh, I think that's it. Oh yeah, and the adult camp. Uh, uh, Adult camp is June. uh, F adulting camp. Talking about having fun people. Uh, Where are my adults at who need to have some fun? and do adult camp. That is the end of June, last week of June. Uh, There are probably a few spots left for that. Um, So uh, that is up, not up on the calendar yet, but it is definitely going to be the last week of June. So if you're interested in F adulting camp and you want to F adulting, you're done adulting, you're like, adulting sucks, I need a week off from adulting with my horse you need to sign up. So I'm here for you. If you're like, no more adulting for a week. I got you. I got your back. So um, yeah, Uh, I think uh, that's it for tonight's podcast. And uh, again, if you are enjoying, enjoying what you're getting from uh liberated horsemanship please share and uh like and leave reviews and uh tell a friend i oh also i am offering uh a membership promotion right now that if you sign up with a friend you can save 25 percent off the first month you have to get the promo code for me though but i call it the bring a friend uh discount so uh if you do want to catch all the replays all the past zooms Um, have access to a massive library of uh, recorded material that basically my entire system is on there, Um, you can sign up for that now. And it applies to any level if you want the mentoring level or just access to the videos level. So uh, just saying, if you got a friend and you both have been thinking about joining, now's the time. All right, I'll see you guys soon. Find out more about Faradijanet whole horsemanship at fdhorsemanship.com, YouTube, Faradijanet horsemanship on Facebook, at fdhorsemanship on Instagram, at fdhorsemanship on Twitter, and also. You can join my membership site at fdhorsemanship.com where you can 
have access to virtual coaching, my online mentor program, and also many, many videos, plus videos for sales on cold starting and many exercises that I teach. 